am especially happy uh, to talk with you all about a subject that I think uh, uh, is just now being admitted by so many people. Uh, I, I remember when I was a young Christian here in the U.S. and uh, people just didn't talk about their doubts. If they did, they talked about it as something from the past. Um, but uh, I think now more and more people are, are saying, no, this is part of life and this is part of faith. And my doubts won't hurt me as much as keeping my doubts a secret or being afraid to admit my doubts will hurt me or pretending that I don't have doubts will hurt me. And so um, uh, I'd like to uh, talk about faith, uh, faith after doubt. Well, hello, my name is Aaron Stritzel. As is true every single time, it's always an honor to be with you uh, here at The Well. Uh, faith after doubt, Brian McLaren. Um, as we begin, I have a, a, a confession. I have a, an author crush, if there is such a thing, on Brian McLaren. <laughs> like, um, besides him, Richard Rohr is the only other author I have more books of. I think maybe Brene Brown might be third on that list, but Brian McLaren has been one of those that have helped me in so many ways. This book, Faith After Doubt, tremendous. I've read it through twice cover to cover and several other times in multiple settings and different pieces of it. It is phenomenal. I think um, there's few others uh, other than Brian McLaren that I think he has a pulse on the Western church, especially the church in America, where people are at, where things are going. I think it's an important, um, it's an important book and a helpful book for those of us who continue to wrestle with, with church and truth and Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus in 2022. So let's dive in. Today we're going to talk about faith as a doorway. My hope is that what I say is going to supplement the readings of chapter 4 and chapter 5, that if you're reading through along, that you'll find this helpful, but not repetitive. And if you're not able to read along, first of all, if you can, get the book. It's awesome. Um, I think I said that already multiple times. Brian McLaren is great. Um, check it out. But I hope that what I say will also just supplement and, and will speak to you, even if you don't have a chance to read the book quite yet. So faith as a doorway. Like, like many of you, I grew up in an evangelical uh, family. Uh, lots to be thankful for. My parents were loving. Um, it was really uh, an idyllic family. Like I got to play with friends, with family, got to be a part of church communities. I felt safe. I felt loved. I felt pr protected. And, and for most of my life, I really was taught faith in many ways, I like the image that Brian McLaren uses, faith as a fortress. I, for many years, it was just slowly building up this fortress, right? Brick after brick after brick, building this thing. And it wasn't until um, Bible college, actually it was 2011 when things came to a head, and I began to doubt things. Hell was one of those. See, what happened was I began to really fall in love and experience God through the life of Jesus, God as Abba Father, God as, as a loving parent, and I began to experience God this way. And then when I looked at hell, I, I was always taught hell is eternal conscious, conscious torment. That people that didn't uh, confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whether they heard it or not, were damned to eternal conscious torment without any hope of anything else. This didn't align. I'm like, this it doesn't make sense. I began to doubt that. And then, of course, the Old Testament and the New Testament 
the image of God that's betrayed, especially in parts of the Old Testament. Now, it's not all over. There's parts in the Old Testament where God is patient and and gracious and long-suffering, but there's parts in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, for example, where, where God commands the Israelites to kill, slaughter men, women, and children. Children. Like, if somebody told me today, like, oh, God is commanding me to go and just slaughter children, I'd be like, no. That, that's not, it couldn't be from God. And yet, here it was in the Bible. And all of this kind of led to the ultimate one, which was the inerrancy of the Bible. This idea that the Bible is inerrant, that it's true and everything it says, scientifically and factually, historically true. And I began to wrestle with, like, what about a talking snake? And Adam and Eve, are those literal people? Or is there other ways of understanding this? Was Jonah, did, how did Jonah spend three days in the belly of a whale like is that even possible and are there other ways of understanding this and and now there there's a richness of all those layers of understanding well the bible was written by well over a thousand years and 40 different authors and sometimes they say different things and different perspectives and i find beauty in that but at that time going from a sort of flat black and white bible to doubting that man that was hard right so all of us ask these questions. Perhaps you've asked those questions or other questions. Maybe your son or daughter came out as queer and you're like, how do I understand human sexuality in light of the Bible and Jesus? Or maybe it's faith and science, and we've talked about that as well. Or, or maybe you're wrestling with, well, do I have to understand Jesus as the only way to salvation? And if people don't hear or maybe there's another way of understanding salvation, it's not transactional, it's more of a, a process Maybe it's not so black and white, or maybe you're doubting and wrestling with how people can vote for some political candidates who claim to be people of faith, but you're like, I don't see their character, and how can people just vote for that and, and, and condone that? And you wrestle with those questions. When your fortress begins to crack, when it begins to crack a little bit, there brings fear. It brings anxiety. If it cracks too much, it kind of thrusts you into a crisis. In chapter four of Faith After Doubt, Brian McLaren talks about this man named Sam. And I just want to read a quote from Sam here with you because it resonates with me tremendously. This is Sam speaking. He says, I can see that I had found into all these assumptions, sorry, I had bought into all these assumptions that certainty is the same thing as truth and there, and there can be no meaning without certainty and so on. I couldn't imagine life outside my faith or my fortress having any meaning at all. I had invested so much. Gosh, I felt the same way. I invested so much. When you give a lot of time and energy towards something, it is hard to shift, to leave, to, to sort of be brave enough to begin to take that apart a little bit because you're like, I've put so much time and effort into that. Let me just say, if you're walking through some of that, it's ex extremely difficult. It, it does. Give yourself grace and patience, and, and it's a process. And for those of us who aren't, remembering our own process is helpful. Hey, hey it took some time, right? It, it does take some time. How can we extend grace with people? As I was reading chapters 4 and 5, 
one of the things that kind of came up to my mind is this idea of a bounded set versus centered set paradigm. I've talked about this before, so I'm going to touch on this. For some of us, this will be a refresher, and for others, it might be a new way. But I have found this helpful. The kind of the first time I heard it was extremely helpful, and then I've gone back to it over and over in my mind because I'm somebody who likes images and, and likes to try to understand, like image of faith as a fortress is an image that, oh yeah, I, I know what that feels like, right? So what do I mean by bounded versus centered set? Well, here's an image here. This is a bounded set paradigm. It's a, a way of seeing the world. This is actually how most of conservative religious people see the world. You see there's a circle. It's a, it's a boundary. It could be any shape or size, but there's a boundary of people who are in and people who are out. And in this way of viewing the world, the whole point is to get people in Three, three steps. Really, to get people in is the first step. Um, to confess, to say a certain prayer, to these are the enlightened ones, right? To even wear certain clothes sometimes. It's important to do these things. And then it's after they're in, it's discipleship really means in this paradigm, you, you put up the, the wall of fortress of faith. You build this fortress on up, right? You build it as strong as you can. And then the third step is to try to get people in, right? Get them to say the certain prayer, get them to act in a certain way, to wear certain clothes, to change their way, you know, whatever it is, to get people in, right? It's clear who's in and who's out, right? Then the, the centered set is a different way of seeing the world. Here, the cross you'll see is in the center. And, and I think, for me at least, Jesus is the center. His life, his teachings, the way he understood God, that is what I'm trying to to do. Now, I will be honest and say, I wrestle with Christianity. What, has, what it has become, I actually think Jesus never came to start a new religion. And, and I don't think he would buy into a lot of what Christianity has become known of. That's kind of a side tangent there, sorry. But so for me, you could say the cross or love. And here in the centered set is more about where are we moving? Are we moving towards love or are we moving away? Are we harboring unforgiveness or resentment or anger? This makes more sense to me because even though I'm a quote-unquote Christian, I still move away from love. I still have times and places in every day kind of move toward and away. And the whole idea then of faith formation and more spiritual formation is how are we changed? How do we move closer and closer and closer so that we are shaped by love for the sake of the world as Jesus called us to? Oftentimes, doubt is the beginning of an invitation to move from a bounded set to a centered set paradigm. Doubt is the doorway into a different view of reality. And I love this idea of doubt as a doorway, because when you enter through a doorway, you're entering into a new space. And I think what's true, I love the image of the tree rings, right? In Brian McLaren's book, this idea that trees, if you kind of cut them, um, you'll see the little rings of growth, right, through the years. And like us, I think we grow in, in cycles. So I don't think we just doubt like one thing and then all of a sudden we got it. I think we kind of come back around and we experience some disorientation and then we sort of reorient our lives and we live in that for a while. But I think we're invited to constantly grow. But I will say this, if we have a bounded set paradigm, that first sort of doubt that invites us into a, different shift, a centered set paradigm, if you will. Those are just images, but it, it, it's a radically different way of seeing the world. That first doubt into that is hard. It's difficult. And it, it, it's, it begins to shift and people will put back, 
push back against it. For example, when I was wrestling with things like health, people would be like, it's very clear. Like those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Bible says, will go to heaven. No question. Those that don't will be damned in all eternity to hell without any chance of anything else. Like for them, everything is sort of binary, right? Like the Bible makes sense. Old Testament, New Testament, you don't doubt it, right? Uh, the Bible is either true in everything or it's a lie. Which one? It's this sort of extreme binary thinking, which is, I think, the tendency of stage one and stage two faith. And I love how Brian McLaren overlaps sort of a, uh, a simple understanding of different, four different stages of faith. Really, the sort of first two stages are predominantly bound, uh, bounded set paradigms. And then as we really wrestle, we doubt those first two things. We kind of pushed into what Brian McLaren calls perplexity or another stage of faith, right? It's that shift, though, that's hard. There's a story in the book of Acts, chapter 10, where the apostle Peter, he goes up to this rooftop, he begins to pray, and he has this vision, and we'll pick up the story there. It says this in Acts 10, verse 11, Peter saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. So three times, right? Peter has this vision. God says, Yes, eat. And Peter says, No, 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 no. Why? Why? Because for all of Peter's life and for generations before that, his religious tradition had this rule. There's certain things that are clean and there's certain animals that aren't. There's certain things you eat and there's certain animals that you don't. And so for Peter, he was like, no, no, what? God. So, so this vision was an invitation to doubt the old thing Peter held. And then the story continues. Peter's still trying to figure out what, what this all means. Three men come up to him, and, and he feels God's spirit leading him to say, go with them. So he goes to a man uh, named Cornelius' house. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. And then we pick up the story with Peter saying this in Acts 28. You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I shall not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So here's Peter, a Jew from birth. For generations, you do not associate with Gentiles. You just don't. Now he's doubting that because of an experience he had, a vision he had. And so he goes and he does what he was not supposed to do. So that doubt was a doorway into a more expansive faith. You could say the book of Acts is all about this doubt as a doorway into a more expansive faith where there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for all are in, one in Christ Jesus, right? So you could say it's this movement of faith into the more expansive world, but it didn't happen without doubt. But here's the thing. Sometimes we doubt and we're thrust into a, a new uh, stage of con uh, consciousness or stage of faith, right? Saul has this vision. He's persecuting Christians and he has this vision and now he he is promoting Christianity, one of the most influential people in the Christian faith throughout uh, history. 
So he is thrust into that. Peter, on the other hand, he has this experience. He goes to this person's house. But later on, we read he has this conflict with Paul over the Gentiles. So sometimes we, we have these doubts and we kind of dabble a little bit. Like, I'm not sure that this passage or this story in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. We kind of dip our toes in. Like, we open the door a little bit. And we're like, ah, I'm not sure. You know, the thing about doubt is a doorway is most oftentimes we don't open the door and see the next room. Like we open the door and we walk through and it feels disorienting. It feels a little bit like going through darkness. It's not, a, not usually exciting right away. Usually it's disorienting. Usually there's some amount of struggle into it. But if we stay with it, we're, we're trusting that it's opening us up to something greater. So sometimes we're shoved into a new stage through that doorway of doubt quickly. And other times we kind of dabble back and forth a little bit like Peter, right? We, we see something and then we're like, oh, I'm not sure. And then eventually I think Peter gets a hang of it and, and walks more fully into that. There, there's often a push-pull nature when it comes to growth. Um, but here's the thing. And um, I guess I'll say this here. Brian McLaren talks about four stages of faith. I don't think that we can push people through those stages. I don't think we can. I think we try. I think people do try. And that's usually a sort of fragile ego, ego need of like, I'm going to tell you what you need to do or believe. But I do think we can create environments and communities and cultivate places, almost like a greenhouse, where things can grow and mature, right? Where we can teach children stories of the Bible. And as they grow, a little bit more nuances of, Maybe at first they understand that, like I said a couple weeks ago, the Adam and Eve story literally, but as they grow up and mature, we bring in science and we allow them to think a little bit more critical. There's like deeper levels to that, knowing that, um, well, the end, Brian McLaren, start with the end in mind. Uh, faith is expressed in love, right? Um, so we start with the end in mind. I don't think we can push. A lot of, a lot of liberals and conservatives want to push, right? I mean, liberals want to push people to higher states of consciousness, and it doesn't happen. In fact, if you push too much, I think people, what do they do? If somebody's going to push me into something, I'm going to grab whatever I can, right? I'm going to dig in my heels, and that's what we see. I would say that that's part of what we saw in some of our recent presidential elections. We, we saw some shifts, and then some shifts back, and people digging in those heels, right? So we should be as careful as we can. This doesn't mean we don't call out injustice. We don't name the ways that people have been hurt by faith or church. We don't say there's, uh, I think we do say there's unhealthy theology, unhealthy faith, unhealthy spirituality, and there's healthier ways. But when, when people are doubting and questioning and wrestling, we're not there to say, this is the answer, quickly jump through. We walk through it with them because we're trusting we know what it's like to doubt we know where this is headed so we have a lot of patience we'll walk through it with them when i was reading through um chapter four and five and this is along similar lines i and i was looking at my own life reflecting on and the lives of people i've seen walk through that were in churches or places religious environments or families that were like this um and they were shifting why is it that some people seem so rigid and harsh and judgmental. Like as they kind of push out, it almost feels like those people get more judgmental, more rigid. They're, 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 they're reacting more 
sometimes even quoting the Bible and, and slamming faith, faith and, and Scripture in people's faith, right? Why is it? So I had this thought. I'm going to throw this image on the screen here. This is a way I've understood it. And I want to invite you to at least consider this. When you look at centered set paradigm here in that cross, there's no, there's no edges. And I think when you have a firm center, especially a firm center of love, the image of God is seen through Jesus. Jesus calls us to love God, love others. That's the center of everything. That's the core. When you have a firm sense of that and you've experienced that, there's no need for edges. No need. If you look at the bounded set, though, when, when you don't have a firm center, man, there's a need for some really rigid, hard edges. And then there's a need to defend those edges, right? Because if you tear down those edges, if you tear down those walls, what's left, right? If you don't have that firm center, that groundedness, that rootedness and love and compassion and this idea that God is love, and you don't have that experience that has kind of seeped into your bones, if you will, then there's this need to defend. And as people kind of push against that, that need grows almost more fierce. And, you know, I would say there's nothing worse than a religious person who's overly jealous and doesn't feel the need to defend faith. And we can look at, and Brian McLaren talks about this in chapters four and five, that Saul himself was thought he was fighting against the, the, the push against God. He thought he was fighting on behalf of God when in fact he was resisting the very thing God was doing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was like, I'm not persecuting you. And yeah, the voice said, you are, right? It's possible that when we have those rigid edges that we're defending and pushing against the movement of God. Um, Spiritual maturity, what Brian McLaren calls moving to stage four, I think brings with this, this enormous amount of spaciousness for people. Why? Because we've gone through those stages of faith. We understand faith as our doubt as a doorway because we know where this thing is headed and we don't have this ego need to push people into a new place. We can be present with them. We can remember what it was like for us to walk through those and have empathy for them. Again, this is why I think places like the well are so important. Trying not to give the book (laughs) Faith After Doubt away, but one of the things that towards the end of the book that Brian McLaren writes about is we need faith communities like this. We need thousands of them and we need them yesterday, right? I I mean, they're rare. They shouldn't be so rare. But part of the reason why I think they're rare is because a lot of people are still in stage one and stage two. A lot of pastors are still in stage one or stage two. And they haven't gone through that doubt. They haven't gone into that perplexity. So how are they going to create stage four places of faith? It's just impossible if you haven't gone through it. But my, my experience, my, my inclination is that more and more people are moving out of those stages. And we desperately need places where we can grow, where we can mature, where, where people will walk alongside of us. Where, where doubt isn't a threat because that's not how we see the world. That's not the paradigm we see. Where doubt is actually invited. People are invited to express their questions, right? Because that's how we grow as people. When we doubt our previously held assumptions. Like Peter. 
right? When we say, oh, maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe God's love is way more expansive. Maybe it's not just for this group. Maybe it's for all people. I want to end our time together with a quote. It was at the beginning of chapter four. It's about science, but I think it overlaps and spoke to me about our faith and what I think a healthy, mature faith will look like. It's a quote from Walt Whitman's Camden Conversations. I like the scientific spirit, the holding off, the being sure but not too sure, the willingness to surrender ideas when the evidence is against them. This is ultimately fine. It keeps the way beyond open, always gives life, thought, affection, the whole man a chance to try over again after a mistake or a wrong guess. There's this expansive openness there. Instead of faith as a fortress, again, I'm talking about images, doorways, I think faith for me is more of a journey, right? Um, uh, let me find something here real quick. Stepping off here, didn't plan to do this, but um, I think sometimes faith is a journey. So this is, this is a Bible. Um, faith is a journey. Sometimes we just see things through a different perspective because we're at a different place. So, so sometimes, like, I'll hold this up. I'll hold it this way. Um, you, you see something from a perspective, it looks like a line. So you describe it and you say, that's what I see. You know? But if I'm standing over here and I describe it that way, you're looking through a different perspective and you're seeing you know, a rectangle, a red rectangle, and you're going to describe it that way. But this is what I'm seeing, right? And so we don't fear people's different perspectives. We embrace it and say, oh, tell me what your view is like from there. Right? Like if you've ever climbed a mountain before, you know at different places on that journey, things look different. Sometimes you walk into a, a, a valley and it's expansive, and other times you're like, man, it just feels like everything's shrouded over, right? Just because things are shrouded over doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. Just be part of the journey, right? And our perspectives shift and change. And again, why it's important for us to be in community, because we are both... Um, enabled and limited by our perspectives. And when we share different perspectives, we get a fuller picture. So may you see doubt as a doorway into something more expansive. May you see your faith as a journey into ever widening circles. May you find and may you keep the way beyond open. May you find comfort if you feel disoriented or you're struggling with a shifting faith. And above all, may you experience God's loving presence deep within you. Let's pray. Loving Creator, we are grateful for this time together. As we walk into the season of Lent, as we look towards the death and the resurrection of Jesus, may we find comfort in the ways the disciples found their own doorway, their own doubt which led them through the death into a new, far more expansive faith, into something new. This new thing was dangerous, subversive, and it did demand a lot from them. But it was also exhilarating, brought hope, healing, and life. In a similar way, may we find new ways to give ourselves to this movement, to give ourselves in community with others. Help those of us who feel a deep struggle. For those of us who feel doubt isn't a doorway, but at this time, doubt feels like darkness. May they sense your presence, even in the midst of darkness. And for the rest of us, may we be a gracious, loving presence for all of those who are walking through their own doorways. Sometimes their darkness, sometimes the confusion, 
oftentimes the disorientation, trusting that a new, more expansive faith is just around the corner. We ask these things through the power of Christ, we pray. Amen.